the rest of us, and them too. If you have a Bible, let's open up to Acts chapter 5. We're continuing in our series in the book of Acts called Church on the Move. And just for a really quick review, you may remember Acts chapter 1, the disciples and followers of Jesus were doing what Jesus had told them to do. They were waiting in Jerusalem for him to give them his Holy Spirit. That happens in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes, takes up residence in the followers of Jesus. Peter stands to preach and 3,000 people follow Christ on that day. In Acts chapter 3, a lame man is healed and the city really starts buzzing about this movement that wasn't called the church yet at that time. They weren't even called Christians yet at that time, but that's how we would refer to that movement today. And this movement begins to explode in Acts chapter 3 and it's all about this Jewish carpenter that had died on the cross just a couple of months earlier, but now these people are proclaiming that he is not dead, that he was only in that tomb up to the third day, and then God raised him from the dead. They're proclaiming that that was no ordinary Jewish carpenter, and he was not merely a man, but he was God in flesh, and he was the long-awaited for and promised Messiah to the world. So the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 3 are kind of rattled by this, And so they have Peter and John arrested. They bring them in. They interrogate them. They don't really do a whole lot to them. They just sort of try to scare them and they threaten them. It's sort of the, I think Pastor Mike referred to it, the original scared straight program, right? And uh, so they're trying to intimidate them a little bit. And they tell them to stop talking about Jesus. Of course, Peter and John, the rest of the followers of Jesus, they can't stop talking about Jesus. They they, they want to talk about Jesus. They they are uh, completely transformed because they know that Jesus has conquered sin and death and the grave, and their hearts are on fire. And then in Acts chapter 5, it looks like now this church that is exploding outwardly is about to implode inwardly as two of their members drop dead during the church service, we saw that last week, the sin of hypocrisy is what we talked about. And I want to pick up there today in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. And I want to try to get us all the way through this chapter today. So as we go through that, I want to point out four observations for us in Acts chapter 5 today. And the first one is this. For you note takers, here's number one that we see here in this passage. God's power was convincing. God's power was convincing. Look at Verse 12, the beginning of verse 12 says the apostles were performing many miraculous signs, many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. Skip down to verse 15. The Bible says, as a result of the apostles' work, sick people were brought out into the streets on beds and mats so that Peter's shadow might fall across some of them as he went by. Crowds came from the villages around Jerusalem. This movement is on the move. It's not just in Jerusalem now, but it is around Jerusalem. What Jesus had told his disciples to do to make disciples beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, that's beginning to happen. They're bringing their sick and those possessed by evil spirits, and they were all healed. This is huge. Man, they're, they're, they're emptying out the hospitals and the nursing homes and the psych wards. And they're bringing everybody because there are these men, ordinary men, fishermen who had been with Jesus. And great works, mighty works of God are happening through these people. And you might remember what Peter and John proclaimed when they were getting interrogated in Acts chapter 3 about the healing of that lame man. They were very clear. That wasn't them. That wasn't their power. Let me take you back to Acts chapter 4, 
Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. It wasn't us that healed this guy. It was Jesus who did this, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. In other words, they're telling them, this is, this is the man that you killed, but God raised him from the dead. That man is the one who healed that lame man. It's his power that's at work. Let me ask you today, have you experienced the Lord at work in your life? Have you experienced a dead man that was raised to life? Have you experienced him at work in your life? Could you testify today? Man, I wish we had all day that I could just hear your stories today of how this resurrected Jewish carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, has touched your heart, changed your life, how he's at work in your life. That's always one of my opening questions. I open up in staff meetings with that on Tuesday mornings. I open up our men's prayer time on Sunday mornings with that. I'll ask something like this. Tell me something good. Tell me what the Lord's doing in your life right now. He is at work. Our risen Lord is at work. And God's using all these miracles here in Acts chapter 5 to validate the authority of his apostles, but more importantly, to validate the message that they're proclaiming, the gospel message. So God's power is convincing here in Acts chapter 5. Number two, the saints' lives were compelling. Their lives were compelling. The way they lived was a living witness to the world. Look at verse 12. The apostles were performing many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers were meeting regularly at the temple in the area known as Solomon's Colonnade, but no one else dared to join them, even though all the people had high regard for them. These early Christians were highly regarded by the non-Christians. The non-Christians saw that these people were genuine what they said they believed, they really believed it, and they lived their lives in an exemplary way. Their lives were marked by kindness and by generosity. But yet people didn't want to join them. People didn't want to become a part of them. Maybe the incident of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in church, right? It kind of made some people pause. I'm not really sure that I want to go to that church. Um, maybe it's the fear of the authorities. Right? The religious leaders and authorities, maybe it was fear for that. But we get the idea that there was this tension in the hearts and the minds of unbelievers that they're wrestling with. They see something like they've never seen before, and they hear a message like they've never heard before, and they can tell it's real. They can tell it's authentic, it's genuine. They see the way these people are living their lives, and it's compelling, a compelling witness. They respected the people in the church. They just didn't want to be a part of it. And yet, many others were saved. They saw the compelling lives of the saints. They saw the convincing power of God at work, and they believed the gospel, and they were saved. Look at verse 14. Yet more and more people believed. So you've got this crowd of people who go, I think it's legit, but I don't want any of it. And then you got this crowd of people who go, oh, I think it's legit, and that is exactly what I need in my life. I, I, I want to know this Jesus. Verse 14 says, yet more and more people believed and were brought to the Lord crowds of both men and women. This is incredible. Nobody could deny that this movement was the real deal. What about you? Is it real? 
as people spend time with you, do they come away going, man, that faith is real. They really know Jesus. He is real in their life. It was real, and the people saw that it was legit. People saw the proof by the miracles, the convincing power of God that was at work, and they saw it by the compelling way that these Christians were living their lives. But for some, they counted the cost of following Jesus, and they said, it's not worth it. I'm I'm not going to follow because it's not worth it to me. It's not worth the risk, right, of what might happen to me, of what might happen to my family but to many others Jesus was worth it whatever it cost them to follow him they follow Jesus and the church continues to grow and expand and these crowds kept coming from all around Jerusalem that brings us to verse 17 what are we saying God's power is convincing and the saints lives were compelling number three but the religious leaders were constricting they were constricting Almost like one of those big, giant, enormous snakes, you know, like it wants to do. Just constrict and just begin to crush. That's what the religious leaders are bent toward. Look at verse 17. The high priest and his officials who were Sadducees. I remember Pastor Mike. Now, by the way, we need to ask Pastor Mike. When I went on vacation, I got him to preach for me. When he went on vacation, he got Drew to lead worship for him. How come I didn't get asked to lead worship? That's the question. But I remember on that Sunday that Mike was preaching when I was out, he was talking about the Sadducees and the fact that they didn't believe in anything supernatural. They're sad, you see. All right, kids. Ah, so the way you can remember what they believe. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in anything supernatural, anything like that that could happen. They just automatically ruled it out. No resurrection, no angels, nothing like that. So the high priest and his officials who were Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, I take that to mean all 12 of them, and they put them in the public jail. So they're sending a message to the masses. They're sending a message to the people, to all of Jerusalem. They want everybody to know we're in charge. And this little startup group, this movement that's happening, they don't own the day. We're we're in control of this. We're, We're in charge of them. They have control over this situation they flex that we've got the power right to imprison the apostles look at verse 19 but an angel of the lord came at night how about that every time i've got to this point in studying this week i hear the toby mack song song right it may be midnight or midday he's never early he's never late right y'all know y'all know that song here he is, the angel, the angel of the Lord came at night, which is funny, by the way, because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. Do you, anybody else appreciate God's sense of humor here? I mean, he could have done this however he wanted to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to blow up your belief system. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gate to the jail, and brought them out, and he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. Huh, how about that? Go, go, go back to where you were when you got arrested and go back to doing exactly what you were doing before you got arrested. Verse 21, so at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple. They just got sprung out of jail. And they go back to exactly where, where they were, to doing exactly what they were doing. They're standing there, it seems, at the gates of the temple complex, first in line waiting on the guards with the keys to show up so they can go back and preach the gospel to the masses. 
So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple as they were told, and immediately. See that word? Immediately began teaching. Do you, do you feel that sense of urgency from these men? Man, the church needs some of that today. Right? I need some of that today. I was talking to a, a good brother before the service started. Just about missed opportunities we have. To have that sense of urgency that we're not promised tomorrow. So I need to make sure this person knows the Lord. I need to have that conversation. I don't need to beat around the bush and talk about everything that's happening around the world. I need to talk about what Jesus wants to do in that person's life right now today. I want to share the gospel just like our little boys and girls were talking about here a moment ago. This sense of urgency. So the sun's coming up and the apostles are back there at the temple. They're already performing miracles. They're already preaching the gospel. And at that same time, the religious leaders and their cronies are rolling out of bed. They're getting ready to go to court. They're, they're getting ready to put these apostles on their trial, so to speak. And, and the text goes on to say here in verse 21, When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. So all the religious leaders are there. In full power, they're all there. And then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. <laughs> so they returned to the council and reported the jail was securely locked with the guards standing outside. But when we opened the gates, nobody was there. All the religious folks are there. All the power people are there. Everybody's present that's supposed to be at this hearing except the prisoners. Awkward. Verse 24, when the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Is this the end of our world? What is happening here? They woke up that day thinking that they had the whole world under their control. They woke up that day thinking they were large and in charge, but now they're realizing they're not in charge really of anything. And then it gets even crazier. Verse 25, then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple, teaching the people. What? This is no ordinary jailbreak, right? This is no Shawshank redemption. It's not like they dug a tunnel out of there and all the apostles said, meet at the big oak tree by the rock wall, and then we're going to secretly get, up, get out of here to Mexico. No, that's not what they did at all. An angel opens the door. He leads them out. They're right back at the temple doing what they were doing all along. Verse 26 says, The captain went with his temple guards and arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they were afraid the people would stone them. I, I kind of, can you see the visual play out here? These guards just sort of sheepishly, right? Like walking into the temple complex. There's the apostles. Man, they are slinging the truth of the gospel as loud and as strong as they can. People are being healed. And here comes the guards just sheepishly sort of walking in. You know they're embarrassed. The apostles are probably smiling when they lay eyes on them. Hey, hey Buford, what's up bud? How are you? You know, you could probably hear the people maybe making fun of the guards a little bit. Yeah, you couldn't keep their rabbi in the grave either. 
So they don't want to stir up the people. Verse 27 says that they brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. We gave you strict orders never again to teach in this man's name. They don't even want to say the name. Because probably some of these guards were the same ones that went into the garden just a few weeks earlier to arrest Jesus. Remember that? And they asked Jesus if he was Jesus, and he said, I am. Only he didn't say, I am, like we say, I am. He said, the holy name of God, I am that I am. And when he said that, all the guards fell down. So the guards have probably circulated the story, don't say that name. And so they don't. They say, instead, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him. What a compliment. Right? What, what about us, Grace Life? Have we filled the 27 zip codes that we represent? Have we filled those zip codes with the teaching of Jesus? With the truth, with the knowledge of who he is? They said about the apostles, you have filled all Jerusalem with your teaching about him. And you want to make us responsible for his death. So what have we seen? God's power is convincing. Saints' lives were compelling. The religious leaders were constricting. Look at verse 4, or, or number 4. The apostles were continuing. The apostles are continuing. Look at verse 29. But Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. Then God put him in the place of honor at his right hand as prince and savior. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, who is given by God to those who obey him. The apostles are all standing there looking at the religious authorities who are desperate to regain control. And they stand there unswervingly. They stand there in the face of this anger, strongly. These men could do with the apostles probably whatever they wanted to do. And yet, the apostles stand firm, even in the face of this opposition. We take this for granted, but we can't forget, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing incredible opposition today because of their faith in Jesus. It's not that way in this country, at least not yet. We, we certainly are on our way, it seems, to being a post-Christian nation. That ride seems to be getting faster and faster with every passing day. Some of us older folks in this room, we might not ever face this kind of opposition for standing for the Lord. But as I pastor these little kids and our students, I'm well aware that it's very possible that they might one day. So just in case that happens at some point, in the near or the distant future, just in case at some point you or I may find ourselves facing Incredible opposition for the name of Jesus. Let me point out a few things from the text here today. When you remain faithful to Jesus in the face of opposition, number one, 
Some will violently hate you. Some are going to violently hate you. Verse 33 says, When they heard this, the high council was furious and decided to kill them. Can you imagine the hostility and the anger in that courtroom? These people were ready to tear the apostles apart, limb from limb. And by the way, this won't be the last day that faithful people who follow Jesus are going to face this kind of violent hatred. We're going to see it again in the book of Acts. In fact, it's still happening today, as I said earlier. In fact, the ministry Open Doors USA reports that last year, on average, eight Christians died every day because of their stand for Jesus. On average. And that number's probably incredibly underreported, right? Because they're not reporting how many Christians are dying for their faith in some of the hardest places around the world. Places like where ISIS and Al-Qaeda are at work. Or in Nigeria, where Boko Haram terrorizes Christians. Or in North Korea, or communist China. Don't forget this today. While you and I sit in comfortable chairs in an air-conditioned building, on average today, eight people are going to lose their lives, at least their earthly life, because of their faith in Christ. When you stand for Jesus, don't be surprised if some might violently hate you. Secondly, when you stand for Jesus, don't be surprised if some will just passively tolerate you. Look at verse 34. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while. Then he said to his colleagues, Men of Israel, take care what you're planning to do with these men. Some time ago there was that fellow Thutis, Thutis who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers scattered. Now listen to this wisdom, verse 38. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. Somebody let Gamaliel know we're having church today, 2,000 years later. Clearly, they weren't doing this on their own. He says, verse 39, But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. So his advice is, just let them be. Don't, don't stir this up anymore. Just let it die out. Just let them do their thing. That's probably how most... Unbelievers in the world may be responding to you and me today. Maybe with just an eye roll and a whatever. That's fine. You just do you, buddy. They might not beat you down, but they might treat you as if you're insignificant, inconsequential. 
they'll be happy to mock you, maybe to marginalize you or to minimize you. See, because some are going to violently hate you when you stand for Jesus. Some are going to passively tolerate you when you stand for Jesus. But here's good news. Three, there's going to be some who fully dedicate themselves to Jesus when we stand for Jesus in the face of opposition. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied. You know what's happening is people saw these, these men are fearless. Their devotion, their love for this man named Jesus that they say is the Son of God who died for sin and was raised again is unwavering. People saw that, and I think God used that to help draw more people to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Here's how I want to wrap up today. I just want to leave you with four encouragements for when you find yourself facing opposition for following Jesus. And let me be clear. We're not talking about when you find opposition because, you know, you're a jerk or, you know, facing opposition because people don't like Baptist or whatever. No, we're talking about just Jesus. When the opposition is we don't, we don't want to hear about Jesus, we don't want you to talk about Jesus, when that's why you're being opposed, let me, let me give you four encouragements about that. And I know maybe for most of you today, there's a little bit of a disconnect because this sounds hypothetical. I mean, some of you are sitting there thinking, this is not information I'm probably ever going to need. That, that may say a lot about whether or not you're really standing for Jesus, A. <laughs> but secondly, again, we got people, some who may be watching today around the world, who are in hard places, and this is not a hypothetical. It's their world right now. Right now, in this moment, even in this hour, for them it's not hypothetical. So maybe to a brother or sister who may be somewhere around the world who's found this sermon today, who may be in a real and present danger to you and your family. First of all, I don't even feel worthy to convey these words to people like that. As I stand in this room with these people, with all the resources that we have, it feels so unworthy to talk to people who today may give their lives because they love the Lord. So, so humbly, let me just say this. When you face opposition for standing for Jesus, be assured He will build His church. That the gates of hell will not prevail, will not stop this movement. Gamaliel was right. If God's not in it, it's going to die out. I'm reminding you, God's in it. That's why we're still here today. So be encouraged, be assured, Jesus will build His church. Secondly, when you're facing this kind of opposition, be assured that there is no prisoner that God cannot set free. Your body may be arrested. Your finances may be arrested. Your, your, your ability to talk openly and freely about Jesus may be arrested. But let me just encourage you and assure you today, God's power is never going to be under arrest. Never. There's no prison bars He can't open. There's no stone He can't roll back. Third, be assured that obeying God 
is more important than obeying man. When man says to do something that's in violation of what God says to do, I hope that you and I will ten times out of ten do what God has said to do. Number four, when you're facing this kind of opposition for Jesus, be assured that Jesus is worth it. He's worth any opposition that you're going to face. Look back to the text, verse 40. The others in the room there with Gamaliel, after hearing his words, they accepted his advice. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. We, we read those words. They brought them in. They had them flogged. And we just keep on reading. They whipped them with a cat of nine tails exactly like they had whipped Jesus. They essentially lined these apostles up and ripped all of the flesh off their body through this process. They beat them within an inch of their lives. We just read that. They got flogged and we just move on. On this day, they forever changed the physical lives of these men in a drastic way that you and I can't even begin to imagine. It was horrific. And after that, these men standing there bleeding, the whole place covered in blood, they ordered the men to never again speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And these men who weeks earlier were fleeing, who now have been flogged and threatened, verse 41 says, the apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. I don't even feel worthy to read those words. Those brothers in the Lord are in a whole different league than this brother's in. Nearly dead, they're rejoicing. That God would count them worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, but those verses, they really kind of embarrass me. These men took a beating because of Jesus, and then they went right back to doing the very same thing that got them a beating to start with. Why? Here's why. They suffered greatly because they believed Jesus is worth it. Whatever happens, as I'm following him, serving him, standing for him, whatever happens, he's worth it. Their lives and their actions were, pro were proclaiming to the world around them, my Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. What are our lives saying to the world? Are our lives saying to the world, he's worth it? Whatever may happen, whatever I may, may, may face, or do, or do our lives say, well, Jesus is an important part of my life. In fact, he's so important, I'm I'm willing to be mildly inconvenienced for him from time to time. 
not terribly inconvenienced because I got other things in my life I got to handle and I got to do, you know, but I love Jesus and so I'm okay with being mildly inconvenienced for his sake occasionally, perhaps from time to time. But totally altering my life, even being willing to lay it all down for him, is he really worth that? I guess that's the question in front of me and you today. Is he worth it all? To you, to me? us is he worth whatever it costs us to follow him is he worth following is he worth giving your life to is he worth serving even when it's hard is he worthy of any opposition any hatred, any violence, any marginalization that you may encounter because of him. Is he, is he worth that to you? God, we bow our hearts before you today. As people who are so blessed, so safe, so comfortable and there's nothing wrong with any of that unless it veils from our eyes your immeasurable worth value the value of who you are Jesus Holy Spirit, would you press that question into our hearts and our minds today? Do we really believe that Jesus is worth it all? Or will we be content to live out our chapter, willing to be occasionally mildly inconvenienced if only necessary Holy Spirit would you capture our minds attention and our hearts affection with Jesus with who he is with all of his glory and all of his majesty and may the things of this earth grow strangely dim with your heads bowed and your eyes closed man my first question to you is have you trusted him to save you do you know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Cooper was right earlier, everybody's going to die. And that's the portal into eternity. Do you know without a doubt where you're going to spend eternity? No, I'd love to talk to you today. Most of you would say, yeah, I know where I'm going to spend eternity. Then, then the question to us is, well, how are we spending this life? Are we spending it in a way that says, Jesus, it's all for you. It's all about you, no matter what that may cost, because I believe you're worth it. Is he? That's the question before us. Let's stand. Let's 
worship the Lord and let's respond to the question today is he really worth it all what does that look like in your life today maybe today's the day to rededicate your life to the Lord and say Lord I have not kept you first I've not trusted and treasured you supremely but God would you change my heart change my life today